Thank you for downloading this Hay Festivals podcast. For more information about the Hay Festivals globally and to access our archive, please visit hayfestival.org. Thank you. Hi. My name's uh, Dan Davis. I, I'm a professor of immunology at the University of Manchester, uh, and I wrote a book about the immune system called The Compatibility Gene. Alastair Coles is a professor of neuroimmunology uh, at the University of Cambridge and a consultant neurologist. He studies illnesses of the brain that are related to our immune system, and he helps treat people with multiple sclerosis and other uh, illnesses, including running trials of experimental treatments. And he's a medical advisor to the Multiple Sclerosis Society. He's especially well-known for his work on a particular drug, uh, Campath. That's its uh, trade name, or its uh, sort of academic name has, is called Alem2 Zumab, as I'm sure you needed to know. Uh, it's a, a, a humanized antibody, and it was an antibody that was developed in Cambridge University to treat leukemia. But Alistair uh, helped think about that, the way that that drug worked, and realized uh, with others that it could also be used to treat other kinds of illnesses. So essentially, he repurposed that drug to treat people with multiple sclerosis, and as it turns out, it does help reverse nerve and brain damage in some patients. He started using that drug to treat people with multiple sclerosis in 1991, uh, and then in 2013, it, uh, the drug received its European license, and in 2014, it's been a, uh, it was approved by the FDA uh, and uh, NICE for use in multiple sclerosis patients. Now, if that wasn't enough to pique your interest in hearing Alistair speak, the very same Alistair Coles is also an ordained priest in the Church of England. I don't think I need to say anything more uh, than that, other than you, you're in for a, a treat. This is a, a scientist who's done something really important. Uh, and just for me, honestly, you know, scientists often get uh, huge amounts of credit for discovering new drugs, for the basic research that leads to discovering new drugs. And perhaps less recognized, and it really should be much more recognized, is actually the people that don't necessarily create the drug, but really bring that drug to help patients very directly. And that's exactly what Alistair's done, and that's why he deserves uh, celebrating. So please, for the welcome to the stage for his first time at the Hay Festival, uh, Alistair Coles. Thank you very much. Uh, it's a real pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me, as it were. Thank you, Danny, for those words. I want to uh, first wow you. Uh, I want to wow you with uh, the wonders of the brain and then the wonders of the immune system. So if I could have my slides. Uh, so what, what you may not know is that the immune system weighs as much as the brain. You may think of your immune system as just a few cells free-floating in your blood, but put together, the immune system weighs the same as the brain. And these two organs, the brain and the immune system, initially were thought not to interact, not to cooperate, not to have anything to do with one another. But the big idea I want to sell you today is that these two are intimately connected. And as a result we can understand 
otherwise mysterious things about the way we behave and the way we do. Thank you. So, here's our brain. This is an MRI scan, and uh, you'll recognize the bits of it. And just to get us started, let me introduce you to just a little bit of the brain. So this is a slice through the human temporal lobe. And we're going to take a closer look now at uh, the structure of some of the cells there, painted green. You can see those. We can take a closer look still. And isn't this beautiful? And uh, let's just take one of these cells. Isn't that stunning? Isn't it absolutely gorgeous? Now, you have 84,000,000,000 of those cells in your brain. 84 billion. 84 billion. So 84 billion of those. Now, <clears throat> the way these nerve cells work, of course, is they're complex communicators. And they interact one with another. And the way they interact is through one nerve cell touching another at these synapses. So these are just the individual processes of one nerve cell. And if you look in higher definition, you can see one nerve cell interacting with another, one fiber. And so we have there a single unit of communication. And how often do you get those units of communication? Well, for every nerve cell, on average, you have 1,000 synapses, 1,000 other nerve fibers touching it for every nerve cell. In the case of my favorite cell, the Purkinje cell, for every one Purkinje nerve cell, you have 100,000 other nerve fibers touching it. Just going to pause. So there are 10 trillion synapses in the human brain. So 10 trillion possibilities of one nerve fiber touching another. And at each of these synapses, you can imagine, if you like, an on-off switch, a signal yes, a signal no passing through. Or actually, more accurately, a little gradation of weak activity, strong activity, somewhere in the middle. Just imagine the possibilities if you could have a computer that would do that. So just to put this in perspective, if you look up at the Milky Way tonight, and I saw it last night because you can see it from here, can't you, Daniel, in a way that you can't in our urban setting. So 200 billion stars up there in the Milky Way. That is nothing compared to your brain. Nothing compared to the complexity of your brain. So are you wowed? <laughs> Thank you. Just wait. Because let me introduce you to my other friend, the immune system. So here's a blood film. You've seen this before. And there are lots of boring red blood cells. But there in the middle is one of the white cells of the immune system. You'll have seen this before in an abscess or a pus or a pimple. All the white cells come together and form that whitey, yellowy gunge. And uh, this is a lymphocyte. So you'll have heard of T cells, T lymphocytes, 
and HIV and all of that stuff. So this is a lymphocyte. So how many lymphocytes, how many immune cells do you have? You have two trillion of them. Two trillion lymphocytes in your body. Now that's quite impressive, but uh, let me tell you that one of these lymphocytes can recognize one million foreign proteins. So the immune system's job on the whole is to identify what belongs to the body and leave it alone and what belongs to an invading bacteria or virus and kill it. And that is quite a complicated task and the middle managers of that task are the T lymphocytes and it's their job to recognize what is foreign and what is self. And to do that they have to uh, have a system of recognizing foreign proteins and one lymphocyte, just one of those little cells, has the ability to recognize one million particles as being foreign as opposed to self. So here's my big number coming. Prepare to be wowed. So your lymphocytes have the capacity to recognize as foreign one quadrillion, now did you even know that was a number? <laughs> Different foreign proteins. So if you are wowed by the number of synapses in your brain, you've got to be wowed by this. The extraordinary ability of your immune system to recognize foreign proteins as foreign and leave yourself as self. So that was all by way of introduction. I hope it's got you excited. Uh, now, at the beginning of the 20th century, as a result of experiments with aniline dyes, Paul Erlock got the Nobel Prize and also said, the nervous system, the brain, and the immune system never touch. They are two separate things. And we live with that idea for a long time. But gradually that idea has flipped around. And the first set of discoveries that suggested that that idea was wrong was in the 1980s, when people discovered that there were nerves very close to cells of the immune system. And I've shown you the original diagrams from the original papers which show you this. So on your left, you can see two nerves in the dark black lines one producing substance P, SP, and one producing calcitonin gene-related peptide, CGRP. And those nerve fibers are embedded in lymph nodes. Lymph nodes are those things that expand in your neck when you get the flu or under your armpits, when you get an infection. Uh, you say your glands are up. Well, those are your lymph nodes. And they are hosting lymphocytes. And right beside them, our nerve fibers. We didn't know about that before the 1980s. And then on your right is an electron micrograph. So looking with the highest definition possible at a nerve, so that's N, contacting a mast cell, one of the cells of the immune system, M. So right together you see a nerve cell interacting with an immune cell. 
So anatomically, it turns out, the immune system and the nervous system are intimately connected. So, this leads us to some possibilities, and we're going to explore these in the next uh, 20 minutes or so. That the immune system can act on nerves and can affect our behavior. It's possible that nerves can act on the immune system and alter the way the immune system works. And that the immune system can cause us to behave in certain ways and that our behavior can lead to changes in our immune system. So let me offer you some uh, real data from real experiments which uh, explore some of these relationships. So this was the first experiment, uh, I think, which shows that our behavior can influence our immune system. And in particular, the hopes and fears of mice can influence the way our immune system works. So this is an experiment in mice who are prone to getting lupus, a disease which humans also get. And as a result of that disease, these mice have kidney impairment. And uh, if I can operate this correctly. So this axis indicates the number of mice who have got kidney disease. And this is time in weeks. And this is, this line here represents the normal. Are you seeing that? Is that coming across? Hold on. OK. I'm without pointer, but we can manage. So on your left, you'll see a line with uh, open circles. And that shows you that without anything happening, these mice develop kidney disease. And by about 20 weeks, 100% of the mice have got kidney disease. Are you with me? Great. Now, on your far right, you've got filled circles. And these are mice who've been given a drug, a drug called cyclophosphamide, which we also give to humans, which suppresses the immune system. Now, if you suppress the immune system in these mice, they no longer get lupus and they no longer get kidney disease, or at least it's delayed for several weeks. Do you see that? So that at 20 weeks, only about 20% of them have got kidney disease. Yeah? Right, the exciting bit is the bit in between. So the bit in between are two groups of mice who are given half the dose of cyclophosphamide, so half the effective dose of the treatment. And you can see that, roughly speaking, you get half the benefit. So that you're better off having half the dose of cyclophosphamide if you're a mouse, but you're still going to get kidney disease at a faster rate than if you get the full dose, yeah? OK. Now, here's the subtle bit. The two middle doses, the two middle lines, are distinguished by only one thing. And that is that in one group, the mice had hopes that their treatment would work. <laughs> and in the other group, they didn't. You're laughing, but it's true. Shall I tell you how this works? Yes. So these mice were all given a sweet drink, nice flavored drink. And 
in one group, immediately after their first sweet drink, they got an effective treatment. They got the cyclophosphamide. After the next sweet drink, they didn't get it. After the third sweet drink, they did get the effective dose. After the fourth, they didn't. After the fifth, they did. And they got used to the fact that that nice sweet drink was associated with an effective treatment. The other group also got a nice sweet drink and also got the same number of doses of cyclophosphamide, but they weren't connected. So there was no hope in those mice's minds <laughs> that the sweet drink would lead to an effective treatment. That's the only difference. The only difference is in the hopes and fears of those mice. And in the triangles that are open, you see the mice who had the unconnected treatment and sweet drink. And in the triangles that are filled, you see the mice who had learned that a sweet drink meant an effective treatment. And you see they do better, at least to begin with. Are you convinced? Not completely, I sense. <laughs> I'm bringing this experiment to your attention, not because it's 100% convincing, but it was the first, 1982. It was the first experiment which tried to tease out whether our hopes and fears, whether our expectations of an effective treatment might influence the behavior of the immune system, 1982. So let's uh, move forward, another experiment. This was just done last year, and this is looking at the other interaction, whether uh, nerves can impact on the immune system directly. And this is an experiment in people with rheumatoid arthritis. And on the uh, axis, the y-axis there, with the numbers going from 0 to 3, minus 3, uh, is simply a score of how inflamed people's joints are. That's all it is, a score. And if you go from zero to minus three, it implies that you have less, fewer joints that are inflamed. So this is rheumatoid arthritis. People have inflamed joints. And you can see that there's uh, a treatment that starts at day seven and stops at day 42 and restarts at day 56. And do you see, uh, and don't worry about the differences between the lines just for the moment, that when the treatment starts, the joint score goes down, suggesting there's less inflammation in the joints. When the treatment is stopped, the joint score goes up. When it's restarted, it goes down again. Are you convinced? Bit more positive that time. So this treatment consists of applying an electrode to the neck and stimulating the vagus nerve. So stimulating a nerve that runs in the neck leads to reduced joint inflammation in people with rheumatoid arthritis. Isn't that extraordinary? And this is about to be launched as a treatment for people with bad rheumatoid arthritis uh, for whom the standard disease-modifying therapies are not effective. So, our behavior can influence our immune system. Direct stimulation 
of one nerve, the vagus nerve, can influence our immune system. What about the other direction? What about the immune system affecting our behavior? And this is a really landmark experiment from Nancy Rothwell, who's a bit of a star uh, in this zone. And this experiment is all about when you get the flu, you go off your food. Okay? So would you agree with me that when you get a bad dose of the flu, you go off your food? You curl up under the duvet, you don't want to talk to anyone, you're grumpy with your partner, they're very unsatisfactory as nurses, <laughs> everything, yes? Madam's laughing very loudly down here, I don't know. <laughs> so there's a whole catalogue of behaviour that happens when you get sick with the flu. And uh, mice do this as well. They curl under their duvets, they get grumpy with their partners, they have exactly the same response. And the way this is measured in the lab is through food avoidance. So if you give a mouse with the flu food, it won't eat it like it normally would. Now, why does that behavior happen? What's the mechanism for it? Well, it turns out that all of that behavior in animals and probably in humans can be attributed to one molecule that is released by the immune system, just one. And that molecule is called interleukin-1. And the reason we can say that is from these sorts of experiments where mice were given interleukin-1. They were well, they were healthy, and they were given this one molecule. And they were given that one molecule either directly into the brain or into the abdomen. So in these charts here, well, excuse me, uh, you have IP, IP, ICV, ICV, it's complicated, but IP stands for into the abdomen, intraperitoneal, ICV stands for intra, uh, intraventricular, into the ventricles of the brain. And what these experiments show, if you look on the left, is that if you give interleukin-1 into the abdomen, IP, you get a rise in temperature. And with the black bar, IP, if you put an antagonist, a neutralizer of interleukin-1 into the abdomen, you stop that. So simply having interleukin-1 in the abdomen is enough to give a temperature. If you put interleukin-1 directly into the brain, you also get a temperature. And uh, that's not blocked by uh, an antagonist in the brain, but that's less important for what we want to talk about today because we're interested in the right-hand panel. And here you see that if you have interleukin-1 into the abdomen, you will avoid food. So your behavioral response to food, which is normal at 100%, now in that small, tiny left-hand bar goes all the way down to nearly 0%. These mice, when they have interleukin-1 injected into their abdomen, go off their food completely. Are you with me? Do you see that? And if you inject interleukin-1 into the brain, they go off their food completely. 
And in the black bars, all you have to do to reverse that effect is block interleukin-1. So that proves the specificity of this response. So I could make you all as sick as dogs or cats or mice with the flu by injecting interleukin-1 into your brains, which I now propose to do. Is that okay? <laughs> and you would behave with all of those complex behaviors that you do when you get the flu. You would get grumpy, put the duvet over you, go off your food, go off your drink, be rude to your partner, all of that stuff down to the action of one protein. Isn't that extraordinary? Now, just as a matter of interest, you might say, well, why go through all of that? Why have these illness behaviors? Well, almost certainly, it's an appropriate response. So if you're a sickened human or a sickened animal, it's good for you to scurry away, to become quiet, to seek a dark place and cover yourself so that the tigers don't get you. So there is sense in all of this. Let me give you another example of how the immune system can affect behavior. And here we're sticking with mice, and we're looking at another form of behavior in mice, which is social behavior, social interaction. And the, um, the actual experiment here is how much time a mouse spends investigating another mice in its litter pen versus an inanimate object in this case, a cube. Because normal healthy mice are more interested in other mice than a cube. And you can understand why. <laughs> We've all been there. <laughs> so here we have uh, uh, a black panel. And you can see that uh, the time spent investigating another mouse is 200-odd uh, seconds, and the time spent investigating a cube is just over 100 seconds. Do you see that in the black bars? Okay. Now, the red bars belong to mice. They're perfectly intelligent, but the one thing they lack is an immune system. These are animals who genetically do not have an immune system. And do you see, all of a sudden, they are spending just as much time investigating the cube, more or less, as other mice. And you might say, well, there are all sorts of possible reasons for that. But the experimenters here, and this was published just uh, last year, said, well, let's take those animals, and they called them autistic, interesting, who are not discriminating between other mice and cubes, and let's give them back an immune system. And there you go. So the blue bars are animals who previously couldn't discriminate or didn't want to discriminate between mice and objects, and now, simply because they have lymphocytes in their body, are now becoming social. So quite extraordinarily, it turns out that our immune systems are not only important for fighting off infection and doing all of that stuff that we learned about at school, but here, in some complicated way, are important to our social behavior. Okay. So I hope I've shown you that 
there are possibilities for interactions at all these various levels. And the big question, of course, then, is does this matter? Is there any point to any of this when it comes to people with diseases? Well, we know, of course, that um, the immune system can attack the brain in uh, autoimmune diseases. And here you can see the very impressive brain scans of someone who has a really rare illness called Baylor's. And you can see these astonishing areas of attack by the immune system. Uh, and I hope you'll forgive me saying so, but in a way rather beautifully with these kind of onion lamellae. Do you see that? Uh, extraordinary attack. So it's, it's straightforward that the immune system can attack the brain. But much more interesting now, given what I've told you about the possibilities of the immune system influencing behavior, is the question, can the immune system actually contribute to mental health disorder? And the answer is definitely yes. So this is a rather boring and difficult to read from a distance graph. I'll test you on it. <laughs> and uh, this is all of the studies that have been done to investigate whether one particular protein in the blood, called interleukin-6, which is a product of the immune system, just one particular protein in the blood, whether that's associated with depression. And the results from each of the studies are down there on the right, and I'm not expecting you to, to follow the details, but the overall message is that in nearly every case, people who are depressed have an elevated level of this protein, interleukin-6 in their blood, suggesting that they have inflammation caused, we do not know why, associated with their depression. And that's a tantalizing hint about the possible causes of depression. In schizophrenia, we know that there is a genetic susceptibility. And here's the latest chart showing all the genes that are involved. And the curious thing is that all of those which I've given names to are immune genes. So the genetic risk for whether or not you have a chance of getting schizophrenia depends upon genes, in part. And those genes are likely to govern the behavior of your immune system. Not the development of neurons, not the development of cells in the brain. A fascinating result. So um, I'm going to end up uh, by just telling you a little bit of where all of this thinking has got me to, and uh, then we'll have a chance for a conversation. Then. So, with all of that going on, it occurred to me, talking to my friend Belinda Lennox over coffee, uh, that we should investigate people with schizophrenia uh, around Cambridge um, to see if there was anything in their blood which might have something to do with the immune system. So, uh, it turned out that Cambridge was uh, too small, and so we set up camp in uh, 37 sites across uh, England, and they're shown there. And we 
uh, asked all of the nurses and doctors in those trusts to send us blood from people with a first attack of psychosis, that is, the first symptoms that would lead to schizophrenia. Um, and uh, we found that 8% of people with psychosis have antibodies in their blood which binds to a specific receptor in the brain. And that receptor is one of the glutamate receptors uh, called the NMDA receptor. And this is interesting because this is the same receptor that ketamine acts on. And uh, for those of you who've taken, uh, who are familiar with ketamine, <laughs> no, for those of you who have friends who might have taken ketamine, you will know that one of the uh, potential downsides is a psychotic reaction. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why I wouldn't recommend it. But uh, ketamine acts on the NMDA receptor, one of the glutamate receptors, and you can get a psychosis. Now, in this small percentage of people with psychosis, exactly the same thing was happening, but through a mechanism of their immune system inappropriately making the mistake of producing an antibody which crosses into the brain, binds to this glutamate receptor, stops glutamate from working, and they get a psychosis. And you may say, well, 8%, I'm not very impressed with that. Thank you very much. <laughs> but we are talking about 700 people in England a year, and you know that's something. But more than that, what we're talking about is a group of people with psychosis who need a completely different sort of treatment than the ones they're likely to get in regular care. So we've started out on an adventure, uh, and we're by no means at the end of it, where we're trying to identify these people and treat them with immune-acting drugs. And I'll just show you uh, one, of, uh, one of our patients here. Uh, this is a young lad who... Uh, went bonkers, as he put it, at the age of 14, was put into a secure psychiatric unit uh, who was extremely violent and disturbed, and he was one of the people in whom we identified an antibody against the NMDA receptor. And the antibody level is given by the blue squares. Now, we treated him with treatments which reduce the antibody in the blood. They're called PECs here, which stands for plasma exchange, where we literally put a tube into someone's neck, take out all of their blood, filter it, put everything back in except for the antibodies in the blood. So we take out all of the antibodies. And so you can see the blue goes down, it disappears. And then you can see that at 20 months or so, the blue reappears, we give a further treatment, and then we give a drug called rituximab, which uh, kills off all of the cells in the immune system that can produce antibodies. So pretty hardcore treatment, and that blue has gone. So we've successfully got rid of the antibodies in this young man. And in red, you can see a rough guide to his symptoms. This is called the Rankin score, where going up is bad and coming down is good. And if you follow the chart, you can see that as his antibody level goes up, his symptoms worsen, 
as we get rid of the antibodies, his symptoms improve. And I'm very happy to say that we got this uh, man out of his secure psychiatric unit. He's now at drama school on his public Facebook page. You can see him, a nice, healthy, strong young man performing in something in the West End, and it's a very satisfactory outcome. So, what I wanted to do was tr transmit to you the idea that the immune system and the brain are intimately connected, anatomically and functionally, and that our behavior can be influenced by and can itself influence the immune system via the brain and the nervous system. And this has exciting possibilities for explaining how we behave normally, but perhaps even more importantly, has exciting possibilities for how we might approach the treatment of people with neurological, mental health, and immune system disorders. Thanks very much. Alistair. Alistair, thank you. That was absolutely wonderful. And it felt so accessible that actually Alistair presented really cutting-edge science there, which I, I was privileged to, to, to see. So let me just pick you up on um, uh, some... Of, so let's go back to the experiment where the mice were having sugar with yes. the drug. And yeah. then... That, that, I mean, that is a, a truly fascinating, profound experiment. Uh, the way you present it was that the mice sort of gained some hope. That the, yes. And I wonder, that led me to think, uh, you know, is it really that the mice have hope as in the way that we would relate to that idea, that our mind is in a, in a good place and it's, and it's hopeful and that helped them? Or is it more of a, they had a kind of reflex response, like the Pavlov-Dos experiments, where they kind of respond automatically, now they're going to get better. Uh, which sort of relates to the bigger idea of, you know, it, would our happiness or our sense of hope directly help us fight off Illnesses. Yeah, so thanks for picking me up on that, Daniel, but I think that's a false distinction. Good. So <laughs> I think that Pavlovian conditioning, yeah. you know, also is part of our human range of behaviours. So I think when we have expectations of hope or failure, in part that's down to primitive Pavlovian conditioning responses. Right. Um, so, I mean, we see this most markedly, of course, in mental health disorders where people are conditioned inappropriately to have gloomy and pessimistic views of outcomes, for instance. Right, right. So, if if we if you can have that idea, then that it is really like a sort of like a hope that helps them. Yeah. So, would what's your view of whether uh, ways in which we might gain peacefulness in our mind? For example, people would practice maybe mindfulness, tai chi, or you know, there's a whole industry of coloring in books. Even could that something like that even help something as as seemingly different as fighting off germs, essentially. Yeah, I mean, colouring in books I always struggle <laughs> with because that never did anything for me as a child. I got very yeah. frustrated. But, um, I mean, I think, I think with mindfulness, uh, first thing to recognise there is that, of course, is just a modern form of what humans have been practising for literally millennia in various spiritual and religious practices. So you have to say, this must be doing something. You know, it has huge evolutionary conservation that right. that behavior is still there. So what's it do? I, I think we see the glimmerings of the possibility here that practicing mindfulness or other 
kind of spiritual disciplines, if I can put it like that, yeah. might well impact very positively on uh, our body and our immune system. And there is some soft evidence that that is the case. And certainly the converse is the case. So people who have uh, very extreme forms uh, of mental disturbance or even physical disturbance can have very disrupted immune systems. Mm. Uh, so a very simple example of that is is uh, long-distance long athletes have very suppressed immune systems right. and can get the sort of infections that you would only see in people with HIV, for instance. Right. So that extreme behavior leads to suppression of the immune system. So, so, how, how, so you said that there's some soft evidence that those... So we can see how you could have molecular tools to interfere with inflammation that might impact diseases, but how, how do we get at the question of whether it's important to, for people to have some inner peace through, through specific techniques. Should, there's not, it's quite hard to get at those issues. Yeah, right? I mean, this is where those of, of us, and like you, Daniel, who yeah. practice very hard science, yeah. struggle to see the way forward. It's hard, yeah. Um, I mean, for sure, people have attempted experiments like, uh, uh, you'll remember in, in cancer trials, uh, whether mindfulness um, or other form of spiritual practices can improve outcomes. And uh, those are very difficult experiments, but there's some evidence that they're helpful at a low level. Yeah. Um, and uh, there's certainly experiments around um, uh, particularly training of athletes. Uh, I'm involved in something where we tra the approach to training young athletes, young elite athletes, about trying to reduce their concerns about success and failure. And, and trying to have a more calm approach to the outcome of their event can lead to better health outcomes. <laughs> um, but you, you won't be impressed by how hard these things are. We're, we're really yeah. struggling to find a format, but yeah, I think there are suggestions. Right, right. So, um, yeah, that is an, it's an important area where we've got to go, I think. So the next thing that you talked about was this amazing experiment where stimulating the vagus nerve. Yes. So that really is a different type of medicine. That's essentially needing an electronic device yes. in people. Yes. So how would that manifest itself? Well, how, I didn't, it's hard to, you know, normally a medicine is taking a pill. Yes. Right? So how, how, how does that literally going to work? So it's, it's, it'll be no different from the person's experience to having a pacemaker. So we're right. used to the idea right. of our heart failing electrically and needing an electrical treatment. So people with rheumatoid arthritis are currently now going to a hospital and having an operation where they have a battery pack put here yeah. and a wire going into their neck attached to their vagus nerve and they can, with a magnet, turn the whole thing on and turn it off again. Well, that's uh, quite amazing, right. So when, uh, it, well, some of you may have seen that another event on here was uh, Stephen Fry talking to Gary Kasparov, the, the chess player, and they're talking about how the way for AI to become really powerful is that there's a human computer interface and that's more powerful than just uh, a computer doing something on its own. And that then, but what they didn't consider was actually the medical implication of that. So, so actually the, that type of medicine could become quite complex. We could end up with quite complex computational devices within us. Do you, do, or, yeah. or is that really quite far-fetched? That really, because you're talking about something that really has one role, stimulating a nerve like a pace, or stimulating something like a pacemaker, or could it become, actually, we, medicine could radically change, and a lot of new medicines would be 
Well, to give you an example of, of just one small change with yeah. the direction, so say you had this battery pack attached to your vagus nerve. Right. At the moment, people have to turn it on and off with a magnet they hold over it. But what if you could have a sensor that detected when your rheumatoid arthritis was about to become active <laughs> through sensing some molecule in your, in your circulating blood? And then that activated the vagal nerve stimulator way before you even knew that your joints were becoming inflamed. <laughs> that would be, you know, an incremental development that shows us where we're going. And that even is, it feels like that would be reasonably it's feasible, feasible actually. That is feasible, right, yeah. right, right. That is quite amazing. Um, so uh, we're going to come to some questions in, in a couple of minutes. But let me just uh, also ask you, you know, your science has moved on now, but back, one of the really great things you did that I mentioned in the introduction was, was repurpose this leukemia uh, drug or an antibody is the type of drug it is, and found that that had a role in treating autoimmune disease. And I just wondered how you came to that. Was there a particular eureka moment, or how did you realize that uh, a drug, because on the face of it, it's not obvious that a drug that's used for cancer would work in, in, in treating an autoimmune disease. And how did that happen? Yeah, well, I mean, like with all these things, it was an accident. <laughs> so uh, I was just bumbling along the corridors of the hospital where I work in Cambridge, and in the other direction comes a, uh, a guy who, who worked on this drug, and he said, ah, uh, let's have a chat. And we had a chat in the corridor about the possibilities of using this drug in multiple sclerosis. The more he said, the more I thought, yeah, that's, that's fair enough. Um, and that's how it started. Uh, <laughs> it wasn't a sophisticated process. It was just a casual encounter, which is why, incidentally, I'm a big believer in cafes and places of meeting in, <laughs> in universities. Or yeah. literary festivals. Indeed, indeed. <laughs> So, you know, so when you talk to these people afterwards, they may well trigger you to treat an illness. That's great. Yeah. So, um, and uh, we're going to come in. Well, just one more question that I'm interested in as well is, is you, know, you, you obviously have this uh, religious background as well, which I yeah. think I want, that is interesting to me. How, how does that inform your work or relate to your work? Obviously, there's a lot of different views about how science and religion to interact, and I'm interested in how that is personally for you. Yeah, I mean, people tell me that science and religion might conflict. I mean, I've never encountered that myself. For me, uh, you know, I'm just awestruck by the brain. I'm awestruck yeah. by the immune system. That goes a long way for me to being awestruck by, by God in a complicated way. Uh, and I'm pleased to be just part of the effort in trying to understand this and, and make our understanding useful to people. But do, do you see these as different parts of your life, that you're a, you're a neuroscientist, uh, and you have this other part of your life, or, or does in some way it all... I'm just, you is, know... It's just I'm, you, there's only yeah, one you. Yeah, right? I'm, I'm too simple for that. Daniel. Right, right. You know, it's, it's just one thing, <laughs> just one thing. Okay. I think we should go, because I think that you've talked about so many fascinating issues that we should bring the house lights up, and I'm absolutely certain there's going to be lots of questions. And we'll take the first question right over there. Thank you very much. Thank you for a wonderful talk. I have the distinction of having general science in, GC, in GCE 60 years ago, so, and you made it clear to me, so that's fantastic. But that's when it was done properly, wasn't it? So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the one thing that I would really like to ask you was an off-chance remark that you didn't return to, but fascinated me. For some reason, this particular group of mice is labeled autistic. Could that mean that there is any uh, insight in all this 
into the incidence of autism? Yeah, I mean, I did del deliberately drop that in because I thought that might interest some people. So uh, this is by no means proven at all. This isn't established, but we are looking into whether people with autism have had early life infections which might impact on their immune system to cause the sort of deficits you see in, in the mice. Please don't take that away as a, as a done thing. It's a work in progress thing. But thank you. Yes, please. Thank you very much indeed for um, a really stimulating, explosively stimulating talk. Um, I wanted to either offer or ask, or both, where would you see the role of people like me with autoimmune conditions who have a lack um, through uh, the attack of the body on itself? I now understand why there are so many mistakes when you've got so many potential connections. It's no wonder that some of them misfire and go yeah. wrong and hit self. Yeah. Um, but is there a possibility of the cohort of people with autoimmune failures of one sort or another proving or being part of the process as guinea pigs for looking at whether behavioural change can bring about an amelioration of autoimmune conditions like Addison's, which, for example, is the one I have. Uh, so, so thank you for your question. I mean, isn't it remarkable that so many people get away without autoimmune diseases, I think? Uh, you know, I feel now that we're all on the brink of coming down with an autoimmune disease, and amazingly, <laughs> it's held up. So... Um, I very much hope we can do what you're describing. Take a group of people who, who suffer from autoimmune diseases who are that distinct cohort and start to investigate behavioral modification. It hasn't yet happened, I'm afraid, but uh, I take that as a positive encouragement for us to do that. Thank you. Recruit number one. Okay. <laughs> I'd just like to, to just add something to that, Alistair. So when you think of autoimmune diseases and, and the way that it's talked about there was, yeah. was almost like you know, the genes give you that clear problem of having the autoimmune disease, which obviously is true to some extent. But what I think is also quite important to realize is that the, the, the top-ranked gene for many autoimmune diseases is a particular group of genes, these MHC genes that, that Alistair showed. And in who's written a book on those, no, no, but, no, but this, I, I, don't want, I don't want to mention that. It's just that, it's just that the point, there, there's, there's a point to me that's important, which is that, uh, that those genes are, are hugely diverse, and it's not that anybody's inherited a particularly bad set of those genes that makes them get thin autoimmunities, because I do feel that's important, because I do feel we have to realise that our genetic diversity doesn't have any hierarchy, because if you get to the point where you think that inheriting some of those genes is especially bad, you end up in a place where there's, then there's a hierarchy in genes, which is the the origins of the diff of, of misunderstanding of the differences between people, which ends up with the Holocaust, slavery, or whatever you want. So the very particular version of those genes that might make you more susceptible to autoimmune disease also do protect you more in other situations. So the, the top-ranked version of those genes, it happens to be called HAB27, which fits with many autoimmune diseases, actually is, is somewhat helpful against HIV. Uh, it, it, it's did also the same gene that keeps you, if you're infected with HIV, it keeps you the longest period of time from developing AIDS, or it correlates with that. So there's no hierarchy in those types of genes, I think, and I do think that's quite important. Okay, uh, well, I've got to go with where the microphones are. Right up there at the back. Right, uh, thank you. My question follows on from uh, the lady's question behind me in relation to autism. 
Uh, given that you're developing this theory of the uh, relationship, which is, of course, fascinating, between the immune system and the brain system, and that usually it works fine and it's fantastic, sometimes it doesn't, or the immune system goes into overdrive, as it were, and actually attacks the, uh, our, you know, our, our host uh, system or host organs. Uh, focusing on the brain uh, as you are, uh, I invite you to comment on the controversy regarding MMR, because uh, in a nutshell, whilst I'm sure we, most of us here would be in favor of uh, inoculations separately, the MMR is a triple vaccine, a triple whammy on an infant's brain on the same day. Uh, in a small minority, small minority, uh, a small minority of children, could it be that it overstimulates the immune system and it goes on to the attack? And could it be that this might be linked to autism? Yeah, so um, obviously there's a long history here. Um, and if we just, if we take all the emotion out of this issue, and that's difficult to do now, and just look at the bare facts, then I have to say, I'm afraid I see no evidence for that. Uh, and just to remind you, um, I, I mean, just to remind you that, you know, the original publication that made that claim had to be withdrawn. And that, you know, that is a thing that we take very seriously in science. If a paper is withdrawn in a formal way, then you have to, you have to take note of that. So, so at a very simple, non-emotional level, I, I think we can move on from that. Thanks. Thanks for the question, because it is an important yeah. topic to raise, I think. Yes, uh, we're there. Hello there. Um, I just wanted to um, pick up on the little diagram that you did on the connections between behavior, the immune system, and the brain, and the, the arrows that went round. The thing that I felt was missing from that was the environment. Yeah. And in particular, uh, I wondered if you'd like to say anything about the, the social science surveys that have uh, brought out uh, relations between people's experience of trauma yeah. and abuse and yeah. inequality and distress. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. That's a really important corrective. I stand corrected. Uh, I'm sure we, you know, there's lots of bits to that diagram we could add on, but you're absolutely right that, that, that previous trauma of the type you described not only has a, a mental health impact, but it also has a physical impact. Uh, I, I think it's yet to be established that that's through the immune system. I'm not aware of data around that. But for sure, um, our environment is absolutely key to, to the way we prosper physically as well as in terms of our mental health. So thank you. I stand corrected. Thanks. Yes, in the front. I'm curious yesterday. Um, uh, Sarah Harper, who's a gerontologist at Oxford, said that optimistic people tend to live longer. Yeah. And um, I was thinking about your optimistic mice. Yeah. And could you comment on that? Is yeah. there a cause and effect there, or what is going on? Yeah. So in, in the experiments that she was alluding to, there is always this difficulty, isn't it? Is it that because you're healthier and you're living longer, you are more optimistic? Is it in that direction? Or is it your primary optimism is driving better health and you're living longer. That's the difficulty. 
So the, the one experiment that I know of that's really helpful in this regard is an experiment which, which looked at a co cohort of people in Baltimore at the, in their teenage years and came to some sort of assessment of how hopeful they were. And then at the age of 40, some 20 years later, looked at their physical health. And there is a relationship. So there is a positive association between how hopeful you are as a teenager and your physical health at 40. It's a small relationship. You know, smoking completely occludes it, or being obese completely occludes it, but there is definitely a relationship. Yeah. Yeah, right near the back there, yeah. Hello, I, I have a young relative who is 23 who has got psoriatic arthritis, so he has got a future ahead of him of looking at currently Humira and methotrexate. Yeah. Um, he also has some mental health problems. He goes very high and then very low. Yeah. Is there a future here that he could get off these drugs? Yeah. What do you think of? Yeah. Well, I mean, the first thing to say, if you don't mind, is that Humira has been fantastically helpful to people with all sorts of inflammatory arthritis. So, so I want to get that out there first. I don't want to diss it. <laughs> and interestingly... Um, when you give someone Humira, which is a drug that acts on the immune system, within a few hours, literally, people feel better emotionally. And actually, that effect is quicker than the effect on their joints. Uh, and that's yet another strand of evidence. And we, we looked at a group of people having Humira. Um, but you're quite right when you say that a young person who's facing these strong drugs for the next 30, 40, 50 years um, has some trepidations. And so things like vagal nerve stimulation uh, offer a useful possibility, at least for taking drug holidays, you know, having a year or two off some of these drugs uh, while still having a suppression of their disease. So I'm ha I suspect what we're going to end up is a kind of package deal for people where drugs like Humira will be used, but also these alternative approaches will be used to kind of modify the effects and reduce the long-term side effects. Yeah, of course, where's the microphone? Oh, going right near the very back. Thank you. Um, I wanted to ask about the longevity of the effect. You said that um, when someone had had depression, it would have an effect on their autoimmune. When they become less depressed, perhaps following treatment, does that diminish or will they live with that effect? Well, I'm not sure I know the answer to that. That's a, a really good question. Um, and of course, it's a bit more complicated than that because um, if your mental health improves, your physical health will improve as a result of that and that will feed back into your mental health symptoms. So. Um, the one, the one thing that I've definitely learned which surprises me is that uh, changes in your immune system, changes in your behavior will have very long-lasting effects. So as I said, your, your behavior as a teenager will have impacts when you're 40. So my suspicion is that these things have a very long-term effect, but I can't be any more specific than that. I'm sorry. Thanks, right in front. Can you talk a little bit about the role that adrenaline has on the immune system and being yeah. under just stress in over two or three yeah. weeks can have on yeah, the immune thank, system? Yeah, thank you very much. So adrenaline and cortisol, actually probably the hormone that's been most widely studied. And, and Joe Herbert has written a nice book on this. So um, did you know 
that lymphocytes have receptors on them for adrenaline. Those immune cells themselves will respond to adrenaline. They have receptors on them. And to begin with, your immune system becomes activated and it's good news to begin with. But chronic adrenaline exposure leads to downregulation of uh, these lymphocytes. They become less able to respond. And almost certainly that's why our elite athletes become as though they had HIV. You know, very unhealthy to have chronic adrenaline uh, 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 secretion. And it's hard to be more definite about it, but almost certainly people who have stresses of various other sorts, so through relationship difficulties or employment difficulties, or as the gentleman was saying, you know, deprived economic circumstances, then it's through that axis that chronic adrenaline secretion above normal leads to suppression of the immune system. So good to begin with, bad afterwards. Thank you. Okay, one more question, yeah. Thank you very much. Um, we read in The Guardian in last week or the week before that there's been some good work on statins in the treatment of multiple sclerosis. And your mention of Campath, was that the drug? Can you just give a view on do they work together? Are, 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 I don't even know if Campath is a statin. Um, can, you, can you explain that to us? Uh, so, yes. So, so Campath is a drug which acts on the immune system. So people with MS have an immune system that attacks their brain. You give Campath, it kills off the lymphocytes, and then they grow back, and they're better behaved. So it's a behavioral modification of the immune system. Now, statins are good for people with MS. My personal theory is that it has nothing to do with the immune system, and actually that the statins reduce the amount of microscopic strokes in the brain, microscopic strokes, uh, which we know happens to people with MS, and it's through that mechanism it reduces the disability you get from MS. So I think it's two separate parallel pathways. And again, we'll probably end up with a package deal for the treatment of MS, which will be a drug like Campath, a statin, a this and a that. Let, let, let me just say, Alistair, as well, that after this event, there's a, a collection for the... Keith Layton Hero Fund, which is a local charity supporting people who have a family member uh, in hospital with a brain uh, injury, which is uh, obviously a hugely expensive time, and the fund helps reduce the stress on, on families at this time. So if you want to uh, leave uh, money for, for that excellent charity afterwards. And I think that you know it's such a wonderful topic, Alistair. You presented it beautifully. When, when we were backstage, I, I happened to ask uh, 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 Alistair if... If he, would, if he would write a book on this. And he was like, you know, he didn't quite say no. And I thought we could actually, you know, he might need some encouragement. So let me just see, by a show of hands, <laughs> how many people would like to see Alistair Coles write a book on this topic? <laughs> Alistair Coles, thank you very much. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank you.